Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. When Bill Bonner issued his novel Trade of the Decade idea back in 2000, a couple of major trends had already been in play for a long time. First, gold had been in steady decline for nigh on two decades, having peaked in 1980 in both nominal and real, which is to say inflation-adjusted terms. In fact, to this day, gold has still not taken out its record high of just over $2,200 per ounce when adjusted for inflation. And secondly, US equities had been on the upswing for at least as long, with the S&P 500 having raced from roughly 350 points in 1990 to just over 1,400 points at the turn of the century, a more than fourfold increase, and up about 14 times from where it began the previous decade in 1980. It seems obvious now, with the benefit of the proverbial 2020 hindsight, that these asset classes were probably due for a correction and a reversal of fortunes. And yet, to have suggested so at the time would have put you squarely in the minority. And that's exactly where Bill Bonner placed himself when he issued the following pair trade to readers of his Daily Reckoning newsletter. Buy gold, sell US equities. It was a classic contrarian play, and from a classic contrarian no less. To most people, stocks, then as now, were fully expected to continue their record-breaking run, led by the tech darlings of the day and cheered on by their own cadre of true believers. Likewise, the Midas medal was expected to continue languishing in the financial doldrums, a quaint anachronism which had long outlived its use as real money. How the times would change. It's hard to imagine, given what we know came to pass in the ensuing 10 years, that people could not have seen such a reversal of trends as imminent. And yet, almost nobody did. Why is that? There's been plenty written on manias, bubbles, and the reliable madness of crowds. But the preponderance of such literature seems to do little to diminish man's propensity to repeat past errors. Knowing this tendency, therefore, How do we steer clear of it as investors? How do we properly evaluate where we are in any given moment? Over the coming weeks, I'll be joined by members of the Bonner Private Research Group, including Bill Bonner, Chris Mayer, Dan Denning, and Tom Dyson, to discuss some ideas for an upcoming trade of the decade. That means reviewing the 10 years just past, taking stock of where we think we are now, and casting a tentative eye toward the future. But before we get cracking on the to-do list, I thought it might be helpful to take a look at the not-to-do list first. And for that, we'll need to go back to the time when Bill was reckoning over that very first trade of the decade. Herewith, 
a little vignette from those halcyon days around the turn of the century, where it seemed as though stocks had nowhere to go but up. You can picture the scene. It was the year 1999, when the Y2K bug was helping to relieve bunker-busting survivalists of their senses, and a brand new drug known as Viagra was inspiring a generation of men to regain theirs. Across the pond, meanwhile, a generously jowled politician by the name of Gordon Brown was plotting to lighten his queen's treasury of about half its gold reserves. As mentioned, the Midas medal had been in a secular bear market for almost two decades, declining steadily from its highs back in the very early 80s. Popular economists had long written it off as a go-nowhere, do-nothing kind of asset. The public hated it, and the papers sounded the barbarous relic requiem at every opportunity as everyone seemed to march along to it. Indeed, gold appeared to have lost its luster for good. Surveying the scene around him, Mr. Brown, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, must have thought it his own personal time to shine. And so on May 7 of 1999, at the Chancellor's urging, the UK government announced something radical. It would auction off almost 400 tonnes of gold, an amount equal to roughly half its total foreign currency reserves. The price at the time of the announcement was $282 per ounce. Low, in other words, but not as low as it would eventually go, and Gordon Brown himself would see to that. As one might expect, Brown's bold decision to broadcast advance notice of the auctions was not without consequences. Even a casual understanding of supply and demand economics might have predicted the subsequent drop in gold's price as the market prepared for the UK's great unloading. Short sellers entered the pool like sharks circling a pod of haemophiliac dolphins, eagerly anticipating that first tasty drop of Brown's blood. By the time of the first auction, which was carried out on July 6 of that year, the price had fallen by 10%, and it would continue to decline in the coming days, eventually reaching its ultimate nadir, the so-called brown bottom, on July 20. The price? $250 per ounce. The strategy, according to Brown, was to diversify the Treasury's holdings, to reinvest the proceeds from the auctions into foreign currency deposits, including most notably euros, and to deal with gold's perceived unacceptable level of volatility. Her Majesty's Treasury, under Brown's stewardship, actually produced a series of reports forecasting, quote, the overall volatility of the UK's reserved could be reduced by 20% from the sale, end quote. In reality, Brown had chosen, and in some very real ways caused, a bear market low to unload half his country's gold reserves. A low, needless to say, that has not been revisited since, even now, more than two decades after his disastrous trade. The sales, which took place over 17 separate auctions between 1999 and 2001, averaged out at roughly $275 per ounce and raised for the crown some $3.4 billion. Were she to have a change of heart today and decide to buy back that very same gold, the Queen would need to fork over all the money raised from those initial sales, plus an additional $20 billion plus on top. And that's taking into account gold's recent pullback to around $1,900 per ounce. Shockingly, 
Brown's boneheaded decision did not seem to hamper his political career. The fellow went on to be elected as his country's Prime Minister in 2007, an office he held until the end of the decade, proving that, when it comes to the realm of politics, no bad deed goes unrewarded. Indeed, long-suffering subjects of the United Kingdom must have been jolly glad when he was out of Number 10 Downing Street by 2011, when gold hit its then-nominal record of $1,900 per ounce, or about $1,600 and change more per ounce than he'd sold it for. May Gordon Brown's bottom, therefore, serve as a cautionary tale for what not to do when selecting potential candidates for our upcoming trade of the decade. On which subject, I recently spoke to my old friend and Bonner private research member, Chris Mayer. The incentives and money management are entirely wrong and crooked in most respects. You know, it's the performance game. I mean, I'm still amazed. I see hedge funds put out monthly reports. Uh, Originally, when Buffett had his partnership, he wrote just annual letters. People had complained and he started doing semi-annual. One of his investors had said, once a year is too long between drinks. Chris is the portfolio manager of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund and co-founder of the firm, along with Bill Bonner. We spoke about what he looks for when distilling a trade of the decade, from big macro ideas down to sharp investable ones, plus the mechanics of the trade itself, where he thinks we are in regards to the current credit cycle, and the inherent optimism involved in taking the long view. All that and more in my conversation with Chris Mayer, up next. When I was thinking of this uh, trade of the decade, you know, the, the duration is such, like it's such an unusual trade. Um, yeah. You, you only have a few, you know, you hope to have a few in you, but you get a couple under your belt and then all of a sudden, boom, there goes 20 years of, of your life. <laughs> That's right. This is the third, third time around. Yeah. So I was trying to think of where I was when Bill issued his first trade of the decade, the, the buy gold, sell US equities and... This is in 2000, and I had the rather unhappy recollection of, um, of myself mopping up a, a pub floor in this seated little establishment in Victoria that was attached to a bus station, the Rat and Parrot Pub, and that was, that was probably the low point of the, of the millennia so far for me. But So where were you in, uh, in the year 2000? What, what were you up to, mate? Well, 2000, I was a reader of the Daily Reckoning, mm-hmm. so I remember it. I was in banking at the time, corporate banking. So I was a loan officer. And in 2000, I remember, uh, let's see, I, I would have been annoyed at the, the guy in the office next door to me because he had bought the NASDAQ QQQs, which were up like 86% that year. And I was puttering around with my value names going nowhere. So <laughs> it was one of those markets, which actually is kind of similar to what's going on today. So it's like, these things replay, but uh, yeah, that was in the middle of the whole tech boom. So it was a crazy time in markets. We won't mention that fellow's name. Uh, we won't no, have him on this particular podcast. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Tell me, he got out? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, I think he probably got out after it fell apart because you know to buy that in the first place, you got to be a believer. So right, a true believer to the end. World was gonna was world was gonna change. A whole new economy was. What's the thing? So this is one of the one of the interesting aspects about the the trade of the decade is the is the mechanics of having a ten year 
trade, it kind of forces you to step back from your computer and smooths out a bit of the volatility, means you don't have to get in at the first, you know, the first 10% upswing or out before the first 10% downswing. Does this change the way that you, you know, when, when you approach a trade of the decade, is it, does it change the way that you, that you view investing or how does it inform the way that you make yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I think like the guiding principle for the trade of the decade has been sort of you go long what has done poorly in the kind of prior decade and you short what's done very well. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea being that over 10 years, you know, these things sort of revert to means or sort themselves out. Uh, and so that was the idea behind it. 2001 seems pretty plain now, but 2000 was, we had a huge equity bubble. So, you know, Bill short that U.S. equity specifically, which I guess you can mention by you know, the S&P 500. And then long gold, which in 2000, you know, it had done okay, but it was still only around like $400. You know, you mm-hmm. can remember that the, well, I don't know what it was 10 years before that, but in 19, whatever the peak was in 1982, was, you know, whatever, it's almost over a thousand for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now, so that trade worked out really well because gold today is almost 2000. So that was, you know, four or five times your money on that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the short equity trade started out really well uh, because markets did tank and there was a 50% drop at one point, but they rallied so that by 2010, you would have been about even if you had just bought the S&P. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little positive because of dividends, but obviously that was a really good trade. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly, you know, it forces you to look beyond just what's dominating the headlines now, what's doing well now, and to think, well, 10 years out, it really is a different kind of thought process. And what does it do for your behavior, I guess? Because uh, I guess it kind of tempers one's impulse to pull the trigger on emotional trades. Like when you know that you're in it for, okay, we've got a set amount of time, we're going to ride this one out, we don't have to you know, get kind of seasick with intraday volatility and that kind of stuff. It, it, I guess it kind of tempers your behavior a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the hardest things about investing for the long haul. So if we just take, well, any kind of investing, I was going to say just stocks, but really any kind of investing, when you, you, you make, you really make a lot of money when you invest in something and then 10 years down the road or more, you make some multiple of your, of your initial investment. That's really what drives returns. And we study the track records with great investors. It uh, almost always comes down to maybe a handful of really gigantic winners that they were able to ride. Mm. And it's like, it's hard to do that when you, every day you have someone flashing a price in front of you, what they're willing to trade it for. So, you know, with a stock, think about, a, you know, even going up four or five times over a decade, that's like four times would be like a 15% annualized return. But think about it, you know, some point you double your money, you're not going to be tempted to take a little off, especially if you double your money and then it comes back and you're like, well, next time it goes, I'm definitely get rid of it. You know, there's all <laughs> kinds of little head games you play with yourself versus if you had never seen it at all. Mm-hmm. Now, my favorite story mm-hmm. of that is a friend of mine who runs a hedge fund in New York. And he, in, it was around 99 or 2000 he bought some painting 
with an Ed Rusha painting, Sunset Topeka, for like $150,000. Wow. He has money, but still, he had never bought any real fine art like that before. He just really liked this painting, hung it up on his living room wall, forgets about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think it was maybe 15 years later, he uh, is downsizing, selling his house, and he goes, yeah, I wonder what that painting's worth, you know, and he takes it to Sotheby's and they tell them it's, it would sell an auction for at least 850000 Oh, So it was a pretty good sum of money, so he decides to sell it. And he goes to auction, and, you know, the bidding starts, it's like, gets up to a million, he's like dancing, you know, I got a painting that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's about to go for a million bucks, and I uh, paid hundred fifty, and it keeps going, million two, million five, million seven, million eight, crosses $2 million, eventually wow. sells it for $2.2 million. So, oh, my goodness. But the point of that story is to say that, you know, if somebody was coming in his living room every day offering a price, you know, he would never have, have held it that long. I mean, think about it. Somebody, yeah. 300 grand, you go, okay, take the thing, you know, especially mm -hmm. again, if it goes up and then comes down and then you get kind of nervous, like you missed it. So when it gets back up, you're like, well, it feels high. I got to get rid of it. So you get a second bite yeah. of the apple and yeah. Yeah. And then it's true on the other way too. I mean, when, when you buy something, I, mean, I know you've mentioned, uh, I was reading a column of yours recently where you mentioned that Apple had a number of like 50% drawdowns. So you have, I mean, it's only, you, you watch an investment, uh, you watch a position crater by half, then it starts to build back up and you think, all right, I got to get this off the table because get this it. is my second book. Yeah. Yeah, there's Apple. been a number Excuse of studies about that, about how the biggest winners have had multiple drawdowns. I mean, Amazon is one that's extreme, had like an 80% drawdown in the midst of its run. Uh, even Berkshire Hathaway, you know, I wrote that book, 100 Baggers, that studied all stocks that had gone up 100 fold from, uh, was like, you know, from the 60s up till 2014. And Berkshire was the number one stock, but even that one had three different times where it was at least cut in half. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there's the other stretch, which, which is just the boredom stretch. There was one time where Berkshire <laughs> went seven years, went nowhere. Can you imagine <laughs> holding an investment for seven years and it's gone nowhere? Yeah. And yet again, that was the best performing stock in the whole whole thing i mean so that's what's it's the all the behavioral stuff makes this very difficult so that's kind of the nice thing about the 10-year trade you just mm -hmm. it, it forces you to leave it alone and depending of course if you if you're investing money on behalf of somebody else just during that seven-year stretch you've got to you've got to front up to your investors every year and be like yep nothing again yeah. nothing yeah, again you know, no, you that would, takes a lot oh you would almost certainly have been fired or canned yeah you know uh for holding on for something, especially if it was a, if it was a big position and, you, and it caused you to lag, it would have so been pretty difficult. So what does that say about the incentives of, uh, of the average fund manager on the street? I mean, that, that's a kind of warped, I mean, it's basically Absolutely. pricing them out of that particular game. It's pricing them yeah. out of the, out of the, the next. Oh yeah. The, the incentives in money management are uh, entirely wrong and crooked in most respects. You know, it's mm -hmm. the performance game. I mean, I'm still amazed. I see hedge funds put out, monthly reports you know where they are <laughs> month by month you know you, you know even quarterly is, is still it's too short to really know i mean i remember when uh, originally when buffett had his partnership he wrote just annual letters and that was the only time people knew how well they were doing they would get an annual kind of letter saying what happened the year before and then people had complained and he started doing semi-annual as buffett said uh, one of his investors had said 
once a year is too long between drinks. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he decided to write semi-annually. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's why, you know, I had lots of chances to manage money while I was writing my newsletters all those years, but I always declined because the structure was in a setup that I didn't want to do where you, you knew I either had to spend a lot of money, a lot of time raising money to begin with doing the marketing mm-hmm. and all that, or uh, I was in that performance derby where it's like, you know, every quarter, where are you, what you're doing? Ranking out. Yeah. And, yeah. I only, I only finally did it when, when uh, Bill Bonner as a partner, because, you know, he put a good slug of money in it. And I know he's a, he's a long term, you know, he thought really long term about it. And I knew he wouldn't touch it for a good long time. Mm. So it gave me a chance to finally try to build that kind of a portfolio that you could leave alone. Uh, do you recall just while we're on that hundred bagger <clears throat> um, uh, book of yours? Do you re- do you recall what the the average hold time for for one of those big uh, big home runs is? Yeah, so there are like three hundred and sixty five names, and the, the mean and the median were both close. It was about twenty five, twenty six years. Ooh. Trade of get the to two and a half decades. So that, that implies, so basic, basic math is it's like uh, 20% return annually for 25 years is 100x. Or you could flip it. You could say 25% over 20 is 100x. That kind of gives you the rough, rough math on what, that, you know, what it takes. So it takes time. It takes a pretty high rate of return. So, um, so in standing on the precipice of 2020, yeah. Looking with, say we have twenty twenty foresight uh, rather than hindsight. What it, well, maybe we'll do the last ten years first. You talked about right. main reversion. Right. What, what do you see the setup as being? Uh, what's underperformed? Well, you know, we we should probably fill in a little bit on the twenty ten trade too. To twenty ten. So let's say we had buy gold, sell equities for the sell U.S. equities. That worked okay. out great. Twenty ten was long Japanese small caps and short JGBs, right? Or sell JGBs. Sell JGBs, and uh, that one didn't work out surprisingly because well, Japanese small cap equities depends how you measure it because there's there's a lot of different indexes. But basically, say they were flat to maybe slightly up, mm-hmm. and then they paid the dividends. So your return was probably low single digits. But the JGBs, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know when he made that trade, we. I remember the thinking behind it because originally we were thinking short treasuries, but treasuries were like the yield was 3%, which seemed absurdly low at the time. Of course, now they're under one. <laughs> when 3% was low. <laughs> yeah. But Japanese uh, bonds at that time were like one and a half, which seemed even more ridiculous. We're like, well, yeah. sell the JGBs. Well, little could we know that JGBs would go to 0% basically <laughs> yield. So actually, if you had bought those and held them, you also got about single digits, low single digit returns. So if you obviously selling them didn't work out so well. So that trade was probably a wash mm. uh, <clears throat> over that time, but it's still astounding to think, to think back on it because I mean, I had distinct memories of like being in Vancouver conferences and being on these panels, like around that time, people would say, oh, what's the one thing you wouldn't buy or wouldn't, would t- wouldn't touch? And, like, almost across the board was like 10-year treasuries because they were yielding like 3%, which seems mm-hmm. like an absurdly low number. Uh, of course, you know, the irony was if you had bought those things, I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty safe gain because the 10-year now is under 1%. It's crazy. Yeah. 
So that would lead naturally to the next, you know, looking up to the next trade. So are you ever tempted to look at something like, a, okay, it can't get, can, it, can we go lower than zero? Are we looking right. at like, like how long does it have to go before that sets up for? Right, uh, right. For that's why I think, you know, we were turn. just kind of, absolutely. That's why I think if we were to like spitball what the, some ideas for the next decade, mm-hmm. I think you have to look at those as, <laughs> as this, as one of the cells, you know, either the 10 year treasury or the 10 year on the ja- on Japanese, because how much lower can they go? I mean, they're <laughs> I at guess, zero. I guess it kind of has to feel uh, cringy. Like it has to feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's got to be the thing that, that, um, that goes against conventional thinking and, and that's the kind of counterintuitive play. So you, it, it's right at the end of goodness, how many decades with, with JGVs. And then you're like, all right, well, eventually, eventually that trade is going to be on the table, but that, that's maybe kind of a super cycle that you have to be very, very patient for. Right. Seems like that'd be a good trade because also we've been through this long period of, you know, where inflation, at least the, you know, headline numbers on CPI has come down, 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 down. And, uh, yeah, I mean that the 10 years, that's why 10 years is an interesting uh, trade too, because there are some things you think about that haven't done well, like energy. So this is in the last decade you're talking about. Last decade, you know, yeah, last decade, oil stocks and energy have done horribly. Mm. But you know, ten years is a long time. Ten years is like long enough for them to boom and then bust again. (laughs) It's too long. It's almost like you know, it's just like kind of like the shorting um, equities in two thousand was a great idea, and about halfway in to that decade, it looked really great. But Mm. it was long enough for equities to pull all the way back to where they were, so it was basically flat. You know. If you had to go down at what would have been oh eight or something like that, but then they they had that yeah. big uh, that big rally there after. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So it caught. It was actually long <clears throat> enough to catch two collapses. <laughs> you got two cycles <laughs> almost, and still still drew to even, which shows you you know how difficult the thing is. So, I guess you get. I guess you get the one upside of not having um you know having escaped a, a long a, many sleepless nights during the interim it's that kind of gone fishing portfolio yeah that's right. at least, at you, least you have your sanity it. yeah yeah <laughs> so i mean other things point. that have done uh well let's see some other things that have done poorly i think about uh just this morning because uh, the FTSE, which is kind of the uk's dow or the uk's s p 500 you know it was it was down big today and uh which it was down like 3%. And then I looked at the data, it was down 23%, which is amazing because, you know, the S&P is like just up. And, and if you looked at the FTSE like the last 10 years, 20 years, it's gone nowhere. I mean, uh, um, so I don't know. That's, that's an interesting one to kind of throw in the mix and to consider because, you know, to have gone nowhere for so long, you've got to figure at some point here, maybe, I'll eat out a positive return over the next 10 years. How does the FTSE look vis-a-vis the rest of the continent? Because I wonder how much of that is, I wonder how much they've, their stock market has Brexited from, uh, from yeah. the situation in Europe. Is right, that Brexit. But some, some of it is surely Brexit. And some of it is also just the construction of the index because the UK has a lot of banks, mm. financials, uh, and energy names too. Mm-hmm. So those things have been poor places to be. I was thinking about the UK uh, when I looked back at, at Bill's first uh, trade of the decade and I recalled to mind the, the brown bottom when Gordon Brown, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
sold, I don't know how much, some enormous portion of the UK, of Her Majesty's uh, Midas stash. And uh, <laughs> you would have thought that that would have disqual disqualified him from political office when he <laughs> sold it at the very brown bottom. But um, no, no poor deed goes unrewarded in the realm of politics. So he ended That's up right. becoming prime minister shortly later. Yeah. What about um, what about the resource complex then? I mean, is there anything? I mean, you mentioned energy, for example, which has done poorly, I guess, in the last few years in particular. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, look at what's happened to ExxonMobil. You know, it's about to get kicked, kicked out of the Dow. Or, I mean, it's just amazing how much has fallen. Just that in itself is, you know, we look for little signs of the times, little markers of yeah. uh, where we are and, and how insane things have gotten. Imagine that, imagine that, that Exxon Mobil gets kicked gets kicked out of the Dow. <laughs> I mean, and it's just it, it would have been unfair. It's, fall, it's fallen so much. Uh, yeah, so I mean that's tempting, you know, something around energy. I, I would probably, if I were going to do an energy trade like that, uh, you know, I'd probably stick with the royalty companies. That's probably a little too granular. Like the, the trade of the decade has always been kind of a macro call. So. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about picking individual stocks or really necessarily getting too detailed into sectors, but I think that's probably a probably an interesting candidate. Maybe more broadly, natural resources in general. Um, so that's a that's uh, that's an interesting an interesting angle to take it. So when you look at something like this, do you look at let's check out the the big macro picture and then you kind of whittle it down to an investable kind of spearhead and say, yeah. okay, I'm going to you get super granular and you play individual stocks, let's say, or you say, all right, we're right. just going to buy an, an index or, or a fund or something like that. Yeah, it's more, it's more like an index uh, or a fund. Um, I remember the discussion around uh, Japan too, because at that point in 2010, uh, Japanese equities had been a very poor performer and the valuations looked kind of attractive and they were very well capitalized. And so the thought again was that you have these kinds of things that mean revert. Uh, you know, the best performing assets over a 10 year period are rarely the best performing assets again over the next 10. And so mm. just that simple idea kind of guides the whole process. And so in this case, you had the 10 year Japanese equities were poor. And of that, when you looked at Japanese equities, smaller cap were especially poor. And so that was the, the natural pick. Um, what do you think, just because we've, we've kind of gone all over the, the map here with regards to Europe and the UK and Japan and back over the Pacific and um, right. did, do you ever look at it from kind of a geographical um, perspective? I mean, I know that feeds into the kind of macro idea, but well, maybe kind of get a buy uh, east, sell west kind of um, pair uh, trade or could be, could be. I mean, a lot sometimes. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think also comes to currencies. Europe, all being on the euro, kind of makes that an easier trade to make. Mm. And you know the UK has the pound, so you've got different currency there, which makes it, I think, a distinct bet. Uh, and Japan, again, you know, again, different currencies, sovereign currency, big market. So yeah, there are definitely some regions, um, but you know, a lot of times people say Asia, and then Asia x Japan because Japan's its own little unique thing. So again, if you were thinking kind of geographically, you might think Asia, but then you might carve out Japan, you know, separately. Mm -hmm. Same thing if you think Europe, but you carve out <laughs> the UK. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I had to pick regionally. I mean, you know, that's another interesting trade because Asia, not necessarily that 
like Chinese equities haven't necessarily done that great, even though the economy's grown a lot. And um, so sometimes, you know, you can be fooled a little bit if you're just picking geographies based on what you think economies might do because the equity markets don't necessarily follow along because either they're way overpriced or underpriced relative. I think European, Western European markets in general seem to be perhaps, um, there seem to be a lot of bargains there more so than here, but in the US, but um, sometimes there are reasons, you know, there's a lot of, uh, family owned companies there that are a little sleepier, you know, they don't quite have the dynamic Amazons and Facebooks and Microsoft's mm-hmm. the world. So there are, there are reasons for those differences in valuation too. Yeah. Somebody I was speaking with somebody the other day um, from Germany and they were saying to me, we would, we would love to have an Amazon over here in Europe, but the regulatory environment is just, it's just absolutely not possible. Very, very difficult. I mean, it's not, it's not so easy. You know, we, we talk about Europe as if it's a single market, but it's not, it's not so easy to just trade, do business in France and then move over and do business in Germany. Or right. Not quite as easy as moving from Virginia to Maryland or something like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, same, same language, same, um, uh, largely same culture. I mean, that's, that's, I guess, one of the big advantages in the U.S. You've got uh, more or less a single regulatory framework and you're able to do, as you said, business from east to west coast, up and down, and that's, Not a that's big I deal. guess, part of the innovation, um, mm-hmm. part of the, the fertilizer for innovation there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, going forward for, from uh, 2020 to 2030, what about um, in the same... Um, in the same kind of market, what about if we break down things like uh, value versus growth, or just different ways of looking at uh, yeah. at let's let's say equities? I mean, obviously, um, growth has been all the rage of the last uh, I don't know half decade, decade maybe. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, you know, normally I think like the value growth distinction is kind of uh, arbitrary, you know, mm. but uh, there's definitely something about it there's this many tremendous spreads you could buy like the uh, russell 2000 value Uh, i forget the ticker there's an etf for it but that you know that has vastly underperformed the russell growth you know Mm. so yeah i mean i think that's a that's a good idea and part of that is the construction of the indexes again because the value side is going to have financials probably going to have some energy energy exposure so um that reflects uh, some of the other trends we've been talking about, but yeah, I like that idea as well. That's also something we should definitely throw in the mix, like a like small cap value sort of ETF or index, because that segment of the market has been just crushed. Yeah, <laughs> uh, or at least has vastly underperformed the growth. Um, and so, thinking as you say that, I was thinking how much more something could get crushed, <laughs> and you still kind of hold on to it. I mean. Uh, it, you hold on to it, gets crushed into 2021, 2022. Um, with the trade of the decade, are, are we allowing for any additional allocation to positions that get increasingly yeah, I mean, crushed? Or to, yeah, like yeah that, would be, that would be pretty good. That. But I, I think traditionally we have not. We've always, mm. it's always been a point to point. Yeah. Uh, I know Bill's checked in and checked in on it. He's written about it, you know, in the interim and says, you know, we're sticking to it. So in theory, people following along could then, you know, 
after it falls by half still you know, <laughs> bet on it for the remaining eight years or whatever's left but here's our uh, here's you, our trade of the decade at half price five yeah. years in <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, even that, better trade of the decade that, and that happens sometimes so uh, when i was thinking about the the 10-year um you know it's, it's an interesting kind of thought experiment and you know bill himself says this is obviously not in no way kind of a stand-in or substitute for a for a more substantive investment strategy but it is an inter- interesting mental exercise and uh along with dredging up those memories of where i was uh, mopping floors in 2000 i was uh, you know i was thinking about the different risk profiles that that different age groups bring to this kind of trade so you're a, i don't know you're a 25 year old kid and you've got 40 years of earning capacity out front of you you've got a, a very different risk profile between Definitely. 2020 and 2030 than someone who's say 75 and you know they're going to be 85 at the end of the decade so that brings a whole other dynamic into what people might be might have an appetite for yeah and you know that you're hearing you talk reminds me of uh just the crypto assets in general which is the one that seems to divide too uh right. among ages <laughs> younger people younger people seem much more comfortable owning them wherever and right. somebody like bill is just like i don't understand it you know and right so that would be an interesting one to think about too, because um, you know what would what, what would Bitcoin be in ten years? I mean that that's a long time. I mean a lot of things can happen. So because that's a technology, it's two lifetimes in Bitcoin. It's two histories back to back. So I'd be interested to hear your uh, your opinion on cryptos as far as this trade of the decade goes. Whether it's something you consider or something you should be completely off base. I will say one thing about when we you ever heard of the Lindy effect. It's a, an idea that um, an idea or technology, the likelihood that an idea or technology will survive is a function of how long it's already been in existence. Okay. So it's a very simple thing. Uh, but so, you know, you, can, you might be able to say, you know, okay, so uh, there's this company I like called Brown Foreman that makes whiskey and bourbon. And okay, that's probably going to, because it's been around for a long time. Uh-huh. Good chance that it'll probably be around for a long time yet. But for something relatively new, we've seen a lot of different new technologies, whether it's the cloud or other stuff. But in relates to crypto, I mean, it's still relatively new. Might it yeah. be surpassed by something else? Or what do you think? Yeah, well, we, uh, I mean, it's interesting because we haven't really seen full interest rate cycles. Uh, right. ju- just to take one example of like these big, um, big mega trends. So it, we haven't really had a real world test. Uh, for crypto against uh, against you know the full arc of of different types of cycles, but uh, I think just the fact that it, you know a lot of people talk about it, you know what happens when when an equity market you know f- goes through a full bust. Um, I think in two thousand and eight, when crypto was more or less born, when Bitcoin was born, um, it was kind of to take that Rolling Stones lyric, it was born in a crossfire hurricane. I mean, it was born out of the out of the kind of you know just wasteland of of the lows of uh of 2008 so i don't know that we've seen uh you know that we've seen a full high to low um there but i i I think going back to the to the different risk profile for different ages in my mind i kind of have it correlated with pardon me with gold in that the closer you are to retirement the the more you want to smooth that volatility out so probably you want I mean, if you're just talking about your non-dollar asset allocation right. and right. you're dividing it between a kind, some kind of Bitcoin gold ratio, 
or crypto gold ratio, let's say, I would think that if you're younger, you can probably afford to add a bit more to the volatility end and a bit more on the crypto. But the closer you get to, to retirement, you probably want to shore up with something that's not going to move too much and not going to keep you and the missus awake at night. <laughs> I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair point. Definitely something we should, we should mention that the trade of the decade. Yeah. It kind of depends on how old you are to kind of defines too how much risk you're, you can take. Obviously if you're 25, you've got a lot more room to recover. Yeah. I mean, and, and then if you're 75, <laughs> right. And uh, so I guess for, for you and I, it would be, it'd be a little bit, it's kind of like, I mean, I, I have a five-year-old and my dad's in his 60s. So it would, it would almost be like, what I would, what would you recommend the younger generation? And what would you recommend? I mean, we're, we're kind of in the middle of those two generations. Yeah. So, so what would you recommend? Uh, well, for, the five, for, the five, for the five-year-old, you, should, you definitely have, uh, have to give some sizable weight to U.S. equities, whether it's the S&P 500. Again, we're not talking necessarily about individual stocks mm-hmm. or because I would have some ideas about that, but just for a monastic class, big picture standpoint, definitely mm-hmm. S&P 500 because that's a lot of years of compounding. I mean, yeah, for a five-year-old, even you know, 20 years worth of compounding, she'll be 25. I mean, you just have no idea you know, <laughs> what, the number, what the number could be, but it will, it's hard to at least based on history, be difficult to envision a two-decade stretch where you didn't get a pretty good return. Yeah. You know? And you throw in dividends and right. compounding all that. All that Especially if you set up some way where you're <clears throat> regularly putting a little bit in, you know, mm-hmm. and then it could smooth out because we are still close to all-time highs here. So if something bad happens and you're still, you know, you're a- averaging in when it's lower. So that's definitely, that would definitely have to be a big part of it, I think. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think uh, 20 years out, I would definitely want a five-year-old daughter to be shouting mom and dad dinner rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. I mean, because I did that. I remember uh, uh, when I had, uh, Calvin was my first first in 1998, set up a 529 plan for him, 100%, you know, S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And that was going into a big bubble, but it kept yeah. contributing, kept contributing and by the end of that time, plenty of money in there, pay for his college and everything. So it worked out. Yeah. Now for the older person, I, I would say, you know, uh, if you've got 10 years, I still think that's long enough to put it, to have some equities, mm-hmm. you know, like if we were doing the trade where you take the value end of the Russell, yeah, that over 10 years, I think a pretty good bet. Um, yeah. There are others too. If you were to do the 10 year on, I know, you know we talked about European markets there. Probably the S&P is probably okay over 10 as well, although it's a little pricey now. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's not such a good bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting thinking about, I mean, I, th- I think it's another thing that we haven't really mentioned, but looking out 10 years, there's something inherent in that that I think, I, I could be kind of off base here, but I feel like it's just an inherently optimistic thought experiment. Because if you if you look at the daily news and you look at I don't know whatever the latest calamity is, or the some coronavirus number, or a second wave, or whatever. I mean, there's there's so much short term noise oh, and negative noise that you can kind of get bogged down in. But when you're when you step 
back from your computer, you, you take your nose off the screen. And at least for me, when I look out 10 years, all of a sudden, you know, I've given the world a little bit of time in order to, you know, patch over those things and, and we adapt and we, you know, we hustle and we, we come up with new technologies and we get a new person who innovates this or, you know. Yeah, I, I think you make a good, po- good point. I mean, it's inherently optimistic. And so that's a good point to admit a bias of mine, which is that I do tend to uh, believe in the problem-solving abilities of human beings to figure out mm-hmm. stuff and adapt. And, you know, that's when I get very comfortable owning certain stocks and businesses because I know that, the, you know, the managers involved, the owners there, mm-hmm. you know, they've proven themselves over some cycle and period of time, and I'm confident they'll be able to figure it out. You know, yeah. people figure out stuff. It's amazing. Of course, if you look at the much longer record, I mean, look at the 20th century. What a horrible, awful century. <laughs> if I just told you, well, it's going to be, you know, all these world wars and all these different things, awful things would happen. You would want to go anywhere near stocks if you were just right. thinking that, that way. <laughs> um, but look at all the you know, great businesses and great stocks that have, that have emerged in that. So Yeah. And then, if, and then of course, uh, if you're buying let's say an index, it's as opposed to uh, individual stocks, you're also buying the, buying the idea of creative destruction with regards to the way that a, that a more or less unfettered capitalist system weeds out the worst and, and we'll, and, you know, we'll keep chugging along and streamlining and getting more efficient and, you know, absorbing new technologies and maximizing returns. So it's buying into the, that ideal of, or idea of capitalism, uh, in a- yeah, and you see that in the in the indexes themselves. You look at the S and P five hundred. You look at the top ten names today versus what they were ten years ago versus they were twenty years ago. You yeah. definitely see shifts and changes over that too, which reflects that ongoing creative destruction. You know, you just sort yeah. of captured implicitly in an index right. because you're going to own the micro- Microsoft and the Facebooks and the you know, and whoever the ones are tomorrow. When Exxon gets dropped, there's going to be a new. Yeah, and and whoever you know, whatever one of these companies don't make it, you, you'll own the next generation. They'll just they'll be part of that index, and they'll float to the top, and you'll wind up owning it. Yeah. So, well, maybe maybe we can we can end the discussion or press pause on it just while we're we're on an uh, an uncharacteristically optimistic horizon <laughs> looking out to right. the future. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.